helped. Second Samuel chapter 6. Once you've found that, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're marching through the life of David one chapter at a time. We've gone through the second half of 1 Samuel from where he was anointed king. We looked at his rise. We looked at his refinement. Now we're looking at David in his reign. And uh, we established him on the throne in 2 Samuel chapter 5 last week. Uh, we talked about in God's perfect time. David was made king in God's perfect time. This week we're going to look at the first act recorded in 2 Samuel of David uh, as king. And we're going to get a good idea as to why he was labeled a man after God's own heart. Let's look at verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 7 so that we have the context of the chapter here. And then we'll pray and get into the message. The Bible says, again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Bali, there it is, of Judah, to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah and Uzzah and Ahio, uh, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even of harp, even on harps, and on psalteries, and on timbrels, and on cornets, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand uh, to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. Uzzah, or Uzzah, however his name would be pronounced, he reached out to steady the ark as it was being shaken on this card, and God struck him down on the spot. That brings us to the title of the message this evening, Doing God's Work God's Way. It is important that we do the work of God the way God would have us to do it. Uh, and so that will get us into the message tonight. Lord, help us as we look at this important truth, uh, Lord, to understand the importance of following the plans you laid, ha have laid out for us. May we not do your work our way or do your work the world's way or do your work through some fad or uh, through some a trend that's set uh, around us. But Lord, may we seek to do the work that you've assigned each of us in our life the way that you would have us to do it. Bless us now. Help us to learn from these uh, vital truths in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What is it that you do with your life? Who are you? If I had you take that half sheet of paper there and flip it over and write down a list of descriptors for yourself, what would you write on the list? What would you put down? What would be the first thing you would put down. Uh, you may say, well, I'm a husband or wife, or I'm a son or daughter, or I'm a brother or sister. You may say, I'm a father or mother, or I'm a grand grandma or grandpa, or, or however you grandparents call yourselves. There's just like a million names out there, right? You may say, I'm a teacher, or I'm a business owner, or I'm an engineer, or, or a police officer, or a, 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 a construction worker. Uh, where on the list would you write Christian? Where on the list would the word Christian come down to describe who you are? 
Now that I've asked the question, we're all sitting in church and feeling hyper-spiritual, we would all put it first, wouldn't we? We'd all put it first. But what if you were walking through a mall and you got yanked in and, and uh, you didn't have the context of church and you were making this list? Where would you write Christian? Um, are you busy doing the work of God? Devoted followers of Christ, devoted follower of Christ rather, that title, devoted follower of Christ, should be at the top of the list of the things that describe you. Devoted follower of Christ. That should be number one on the list. That should describe you if you are truly a lover of God. Everything else, everything else flows from that. Everything else. Whether you want to write your relationships down after that or your work title down after that, everything should flow from I am a devoted follower of Christ. Everything that a follower of Jesus does is the work of God and should be done to bring glory and honor to God. I want to ask each of you here this evening, are you doing the work of God with your life? Are you doing the work of God with your life? Um, God does not want us, God does not only want us to do His work, he wants, to do his, he wants us to do His work His way. His work His way. As I lay this out this evening in the message, I want you to understand the importance of doing God's work God's way. If I come home tomorrow to find that my children have done, uh, uh, done their chores, I will be pleased. Come home tomorrow and find my kids have done their chores, I'd be pleased. Let's say that one of the uh, chores I've assigned to my children to work together on is to wash the dishes. All right? Dishwasher. All right, that's a good chore for children, washing the dishes. And I come home and find out they got the chores done. But I find out they washed the dishes with toilet water. All right? Um... When they got out of the hospital from my wife almost killing them, all right, um, we'd have to have a talk about why toilet water is not used to wash dishes. Did they get the dishes washed? Yes. Did they do it the right way? No. Are we understanding that our, our, the avenue of how we do God's work it really does matter. And you can go about trying to do the work of God the wrong way and make a big, big, big mess. Big mess. There is a specific way God wants you to be married. He does not want you to do it the world's model. He does not want you to do it your model. He does not want you to copy the way your parents did it growing up. There is a specific way God wants you to parent. He doesn't want you to follow the broken model you were given growing up. Maybe it was very broken or just broken in some ways. He doesn't want you to read some book written by some secular person. He doesn't want you to raise your kids through some broken model. He wants you to do God's work of parenting. He wants you to do it His way. There are very specific tasks that God assigns us to do. And it isn't enough for us just to broadly state, I'm going to go forth and do the work of God. No, God oftentimes not only tells us what to do, He tells us how to do it. How to do it. And when we won't do it God's way, we make a very, very, very large mess of things. We're going to see that tonight. Tonight we're going to look at three points as we consider the truth out of 2 Samuel 6. 
doing God's work God's way. So let's jump in tonight, look at point number one, and let's first notice David's motive. David's motive. Look at verses one and two, all right? One and two. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baali of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. So David, his motive here is to bring the ark from where it is sitting uh, in a man's house into Jerusalem and welcome the presence of God into the new capital city of Israel. That is a good motive. David wants to do a good thing. David wants to do the work of God. Before I advance any further in the sermon, Christian, let me just make sure you understand that getting it right begins with the right motive. The right motive. Many people, I talked about this morning, how many folks don't even consider God in their choices. They go off buying a car, buying a house, or uh, uh, picking a career, or picking a spouse, and uh, they don't even consider what God's will would be. And it begins by uh, even putting that on your radar to pray. And I would say that doing uh, God's work God's way, it begins with a choice that I am going to do the work of God. I will, with my life, choose to serve God. And David here, his motives were pure. The Ark of the Covenant was had been lost. If you go back to 1 Samuel 4, it had been lost in war to the Philistines. And the Philistines had put it up in the house of their God. And uh, emeroids had come upon all of the people in the city. And, and I'm just telling you how the story goes in the Bible. Amen. And then uh, the uh, Philistines eventually decided this thing is a curse to us. So they gave it back to the uh, Israelites, and it had sat there for 75 years, just sitting in a man's house. And David said, it is time that we bring the Ark of the Covenant and put it in the city of Jerusalem. David's motives are right. What were David's motives? Well, we're told what David's motives are in Second Samuel 6, as well as First Chronicles 13. Let's begin in Second Samuel 6, and notice David's motive, one of his motives was to honor the Lord. To honor the Lord. All the way back when God gave the law to Moses in Deuteronomy, the re-giving of the law in Deuteronomy, over and over again, Moses referenced a future place where God would reside amongst his people. Let me just show you just a, a small sampling of verses in Deuteronomy that show this. Turn over to Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. The Lord was very clear that one day he would establish a place where he would dwell symbolically among the people. Now, I don't want to get doctrinally deep on you here, but God is omnipresent. He already existed in every corner of Israel. But symbolically, he wanted there to be a place where he dwelled among his people. And God told Moses, uh, God had Moses tell the people that one day a place, a geographical location would be chosen. Deuteronomy 12, uh, we find three instances of this being stated to the Jews prior to their inheriting of the promised land. Look at Deuteronomy 12, look at verse 5. He says there, but unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose. Notice this is a future choosing. Out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. So there will be, in the future, there will be a geographical location where I will, God says, I will put my name. Look down at verse 11. Look down at verse 11. Deuteronomy 12. Then there shall be a place which the Lord your, Lord your God shall choose 
to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. Again, there will be a place that there, there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose. Look down at verse 21. Verse 21. In the place, again, this is a specific location, which the Lord thy God hath chosen to put his name, there be too far from thee, then thou shalt kill of thy herd and of thy flock, which the Lord hath given thee, as I have commanded thee, and thou shalt eat in thy gates, whithersoever thy soul lusteth or wanteth after, desireth after. So here, um, he is saying to them, there will be a place where you are to go. And so listen, it was time for that place to be chosen. It was time for that place to be chosen. Uh, this was several uh, generations prior where Moses and the Israelites are preparing to go in and the 40 years expired and into the promised land they went and they conquered Jericho and then they conquered Ai and city after city fell and then Joshua divided up the tribes amongst the people and, and then you had the era of the judges, generation after generation of judges and then Saul was picked to be king and that was not God's will. Now David's been picked to be king and David establishes uh, Jerusalem. He's conquered that. We saw that last week. He's conquered Jerusalem and he's made Jerusalem uh, the, the capital of the city. And Jerusalem is called the city of David in 2 Samuel 5. And God was not uh, pleased with it just being the city of David. He wanted it to be the place for himself. And so David said, I want to honor the Lord with my choices. I want, to, uh, I want to honor the Lord with my reign. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant out of hiding. And let's, put it, uh, let, let's establish it right here in Jerusalem. What was David's motive? Well, it was to honor the Lord. Letter B, notice it was to unify the people. It was to unify the people. Turn over to 1 Chronicles 13. Now, 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel mirror each other in a lot of ways. 1 Chronicles is more of a um, historical record of the same events that take place in 2 Samuel. And 2 Samuel is more of a storytelling type feel, feel. And so we get 1 Chronicles giving us one record and 2 Chronicles, uh, or rather 2 Samuel giving us an, another angle of the same story. You can compare it to like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John giving the same accounts of Jesus uh, from another angle. And so 1 Chronicles 13 gives us a few more details about this story. Look at verse number 1. And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are in the left, um, that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levite which are in the cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. And let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquire not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregations said that they would do so, for all the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David, look at verse 5, David gathered all Israel together. Notice the, the, the vast di distance uh, in, in cities here, from uh, Shihor of Egypt, that's bordering Egypt, okay? That would be one border of Israel, even unto the entering of 
Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim, where it resided. And so here you have opposite extremes of Israel. And David says, let's go get the ark and gather all of Israel together so that we can worship the Lord together. Verse 6, And David went up in all Israel to Bala, that is Kirjath-Jerim, which belongeth to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God, the uh, the, the ark of God, the Lord, that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. And so biblical historians tell us that David had been king over all of Israel now for six years at this point. Six years at this point. On some level, there was still a fractured spirit within the country. There were those who still had not yet totally embraced David as king. And so David is looking for ways to bring the big cities and the little cities, the, 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 uh, the, the metropolitan area and the rural areas together. And so he said, I have a great idea. Let's go get the ark of the Lord and let's bring it up. And this will be something we can all rally around together. We can all celebrate together. And so David does this to unify the people, unify the people. Now, it, is there anything wrong with unifying people around God? And the answer, obviously, is no. This is a great thing. Uh, I have learned in six years of pastoring, and in, in even years prior to that, and working in larger ministries, I have learned that if you don't get people working outwardly, they will fight inwardly. Inwardly. Um, we put on, we have put on, in my six years of pastor, we put on several Christmas and Easter dramas haven't done one in a few years. We may be doing one here soon, but Christmas and Easter dramas where we have a drama team and the choir gets five, six, seven songs ready and uh, the drama team uh, gets things ready and there's props and there's a stage and, and we, we announce it and we, we, we print door hangers and we get people out in the community to invite and we have two or three showings and, and people show up and, and we give the gospel and, and folks get saved. And every time when we're in the middle of getting ready for one of these, and maybe we're having the matinee or the, or the final dress rehearsal and, and, and it's stressful and, 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 and there's a lot of moving parts and we're wondering if we're going to be able to, ever be able to pull it off, I always stop and remind myself even if our outreach into the community is minimal, all of us together as a church are working toward the gospel. And you know what? That is a good thing. Because putting on something big like that, it unifies the church doing the work of the Lord. And here David is bringing Israel together to go get the ark. And listen, if you're not looking outward, you'll end up fighting inward. If you're not looking outward, you'll end up fighting inward. Some of you, you'd quit having so many fights at home with your family if, the, if, if you all would pile up in a car on Saturday morning and come here to church and just decide to do the work of the Great Commission together as a family. You know what? There'd be a lot, more, lot less bickering and a lot more working. A lot more working. Some of you, uh, you'd have a lot less problem with your parents at home if you just say, Mom and Dad, we're on a team and we're going to serve the Lord together. We're not going to fight. We're going to work together. And uh, some of you wives would have a lot less strife with your husband if you'd follow him into doing the work of the Lord instead of fighting with him and, 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 and trying to put the brakes on with him all along the way. Get on board and do the work of the Lord. As a family, when you're looking outward at people, there's a whole lot less strife inward. David's motives were pure. His motives were pure. He wanted to bring the ark of, the, of God into Jerusalem. That was the right thing to do. He wanted to honor the Lord in that action. 
obviously, anytime we want to honor the Lord, that is the right thing to do. He wanted to unify the people. That is the right thing to do. But see, David was doing God's work, but initially he did not do it God's way. Number one, we see David's motive. Number two, we see David's method. David's method. Uh, look, We're going to look at um, uh, some verses here in just a moment. Sometimes God does not only tell us what to do, He goes a step further and He tells us how to do it. It's not good enough to simply do the work of God. When we're given specific instructions, we must follow through on those instructions. David would make two attempts at relocating the Ark of the Covenant. The first time, he would do it his way. And fail. The second time, he would do it God's way, and he would succeed. Now, let me give you some examples in the Bible of doing God's work God's way. You remember when God came down to Noah, and he said, I want you to build a boat. I want you to build an ark. Not A-R-K, like in this passage, A-R-C, right? A big, giant boat. And he gave him very, very, very specific instructions. He told him exactly what kind of wood to use. He told him how to tar it or pitch it inside and out. What if Noah would have said, you know what? I have been called to build an ark, but I'm going to build it my way. You know, I've been down to the lumber yard, and uh, this particular type of wood is a lot cheaper uh, than uh, gopher wood, and I, I'm going to go with that. Or what if he had said, you know what? Tarring the boat, pitching the boat uh, on both sides. Oh, man, I, you know, I think I can get by with this lacquer. I'll put that on one side, and then I'll... I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it on, on the other. Let's say that uh, Noah had done God's work his way. And then they got in the boat. And then the rain came. You know what it would have been? It would have been a total disaster. You know what would have happened? You and I wouldn't be here right now. There would be no more human life. You understand that Noah could have put in the same 120 years of effort to build the boat... But if he had not done it God's way, it would have still ended disastrously. When God tells you to do something and he gives you specific instructions, it's not good enough for you to say, well, I am, uh, my motives are pure. No. Noah's motives could have been pure and things could have turned out disastrously. How about, I'll give you another example where someone got it wrong. You remember uh, Moses in the wilderness with the Israelites? The first time God said, strike the rock. And he did. He struck the rock. And water came pouring out. And then years later, Moses got frustrated again with the Israelites. And God said, do not strike the rock. Speak to the rock. Now, what was Moses' motive? His motive was to get water for his people. Was his motive correct? Yes. Was his method correct? No. He struck the rock out of anger the second time. Water came flowing out. Boy, he got it accomplished. But God, the Bible says, the Lord was grieved. Why? Because Moses did the work of the Lord, but he did not do it God's way. He did it his own way. Moses was barred from entering the promised land because he wanted to do God's work his own way instead of doing God's work God's way. God gives specific instructions. We should not seek to do it our way or a way that pleases the world around us. We should do it God's way. 
I look around at marriages today, even those within our own church, and I see a bunch of marriages that are very, very dysfunctional. Very dysfunctional. Wives that lead husbands instead of husbands that lead wives. Husbands who are comfortable with letting their wife lead while they silently sit in the background and do very little. Husbands and wives who bicker and argue, fight like cats and dogs. I'm talking about couples who have been married for 20 and 30 years. It's great that you're married. It's God's will for you to be married. Boy, we're told that God created marriage. Your motive in getting married may have even been pure and honorable. But when you don't do marriage God's way, you make a mess for everybody. You make a mess for everybody. It isn't enough to say, well, my motive was right. That's great. You had the right motive. You need to do it God's way. How about parenting? A lot of us moms and dads have no idea what we're doing in raising our kids. I look at I look at the generation of children growing up and I see that the art of parenting is lost. Lost. I see little kids who don't ever or very rarely actually obey their mother and father. They pitch a fit and they get their way. They're entitled. They're entitled. Moms and dads who, when it comes to parenting, have no clue what they're doing. And you know why? Because we want to raise godly kids. And we have the right motive. But we are not willing to follow the recipe laid out in Scripture. We're not. We're not. The Bible says that little, little kids need to be spanked. Now, I'm just going to be very plain with you tonight. I can't tell you how many Christian parents I've had look at me and say, spanking in my house doesn't work. Are you saying God's way doesn't work? Because that's not my idea. I didn't invent spanking. I didn't come up with it. Solomon wrote it by inspiration of God 4,000 years ago in the book of Proverbs. And he said, if I can use the American version of it, if you spare the rod, you're going to spoil the child. He went a step further and said, if you're not willing to spank your child, you hate your own child. That's what he said. That's what he said. Samuel moved into the palace, or rather moved into the tabernacle there at Shiloh, back in the beginning of 1 Samuel. And God killed Eli before it was his time. Do you know why God killed Eli? Because the Bible says he would not restrain his children. He let them have whatever they want. Oh, mom and dad, I want to go here. Oh, mom and dad, I want to go there. Oh, mom and dad, I need this. Oh, mom and dad, I have to have that. And we cave and we give in and we cave and we give in because we want to do the right thing, but we're not willing to follow God's model. We're not. 
And my friend, it's not good enough to just step up and say, my motives are pure. I'm trying to do the work of God. God says, I don't just want you to do my work. I've given you clear instructions in Scripture. I want you to do it my way. How about the Lord's Supper? Well, you know, our church has the Lord's Supper once every couple months, once every few months, and you know, I'll just put that bread in my mouth and, and drink that juice and we'll go on to the next one because that's just what we do at church. No, 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 no. We preached a whole sermon about this a few weeks ago when we took the Lord's Supper about how this is to be taken very seriously. Don't you go putting that wafer in your mouth and drinking that juice until you have confessed your sins and made things right before the Lord and made things right with your brother and sister in Christ and you have a heart that's pure before God and others and you make sure that you've hit the reset button in your life then and only then with great reverence and fear toward God you partake of the Lord's Supper remembering that sacrifice. How about church structure? Church growth? And then... If I was preaching to a group of pastors, I would be harping on this one and less on parenting and marriage. But I'll just hit it quickly and move on. A lot of people want to build churches today based on trends and, 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 and some model and, and some set of music. And, 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 and this is working over here. And this church is growing and supposing that gain is godliness from such turn aside. And I'm not called to see why don't Baptist church grow. I'm called to love people. I'm called to administrate the church. And God grows the church. It is Christ who builds the church. Not Richard Lejeune or Andrew McGuire or Jacob O'Kai or Michael Syred or James Owens that grows the church. It is the Lord who builds His church. We're to do it His way. We're not to do it our way. We're not to do it so as to please our friends or our parents or our neighbors or anyone else around us. It does not matter what anybody but the Lord Jesus Christ thinks about the way you live your life. You do the work of God, you do it His way. Letter A, we see, speaking of David, we see his failure. Look at verse 3. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. That was in Gibeah. In Usa and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab. That was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord in all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. Now, where did they get the idea to transfer the Ark of the Covenant by way of a cart. That was not God's idea. Where did they get that idea? We know from 1 Samuel that this is how the Philistines dropped off the Ark there in Kirjath-Jerim. It's possible that they were copying the world's method. They were saying, well, that's how the Philistines transferred it, so that's how we'll do it. Now, I wouldn't hang my doctrinal hat on that statement because that was 75 years prior. Probably they didn't even know that, probably. But I do find it interesting that they used the same method that the Philistines used. Right? We're going to, we're going to do uh, the work of God by following a model that the world created. Oh, 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 my friend, that is a failure. What's more likely? Take your Bibles over to Numbers chapter 1. Numbers 1, verse 51. What's more likely is that David was too careless 
to research and see how God wanted this holy piece of furniture transferred. David did not take the time to see what God had written through Moses about how the ark was to be transferred from one location to the other. Look at Numbers chapter 1 and look at verse 51. The Bible says, And when the tabernacle setteth forward, the Levite shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. Look here. And the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Now, we're not told of the tribe of Ohio and Uzzah, but I get the sense that these were not Levites. These were not men of the tribe of Levi. God was very clear that only those of the tribe of Levi were to move the tabernacle and its contents. He even gets more specific. There was a family within Levi uh, that was supposed to do this. Look at Numbers chapter 4. Now, if you want the full context, I would encourage you to back up to verse number 9 and read down through verse number, I believe it's 20. I, I looked at it earlier this week in prep. I don't have that right in front of me right now. But go, read all of Numbers 4 and you'll have a better have this verse in context here, but the Bible is talking about in Numbers 4 the moving of the ark as well as all of the other furniture within the tabernacle. He's giving very clear instructions on how it's to be transferred. Look at verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary as the camp is is set forward, after that, look here, the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch Any holy thing, look here, lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. Not only was this the duty for the Levites, but more specifically, it was for the Kohathites who were a family within the tribe of Levi. Now notice back in verse 15 that it says right there in the middle of the verse, it says they were to bear it. They were to bear it. You know what that means? That means they were to carry it on their shoulders. They were not to put it on a cart. No one was to touch the ark. And if they did so, they were at risk of death. Now, picture David. All right, I want you to picture this. David is out front of this ox-pulled cart. He's got a choir singing. He's got an orchestra playing. His motives are pure. His motives are pure. He's seeking to honor the Lord. He's seeking to unify the people. But he's doing God's work his way and not doing God's work God's way. He's doing the right thing the wrong way. And it's about to cost someone their life. Letter A, we see David's failure. Letter B, we see God's fury. God's fury. Look down at verse 6 and 7 of 2 Samuel Chapter 6, the Bible says, And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. And the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. God was not pleased. Uzzah, or Uzzah, was killed. Now, Are you beginning to see that God values? Listen up. You're beginning to see that God values that we do His work His way? David did God's work His own way, and it cost Uzzah his life. Killed him. God wasn't playing around. 
God said through Moses in Numbers, here's how you're to move that ark, and if you don't do it my way, someone could die. I mean, why, why would God do that? I mean, it was an innocent mistake. Uh, uh, listen, uh, 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 how, uh, why would God just strike him dead? That seems so unfair. When God gives instructions, we are to follow or there are consequences. Now, throughout the Bible, when a new era or dispensation is beginning, God has a way of laying down the law and putting the fear of God into his people. You may remember Nadab and Abihu in Numbers 10, right? Strange fire before the Lord. God struck them down and killed them. You may remember Achan when they were first entering the promised land. Joshua 6 and 7, he took of the Babylonian garment, the silver and gold, and uh, buried it under his tent. And God had Achan and his entire family and his livestock stoned and killed. Uh, you have this instance here in 2 Samuel 6 of, of Uzzah being struck down and killed. You have Acts chapter 5, the beginning of the church age where Ananias and Sapphira lied about their gift to the Lord and they were Killed, God was setting the standard. Listen, you will do this my way. You will do it my way. Don't play games with what I've told you to do. God's fury. God looked down and said, I wrote in the book how I wanted it done. You have been careless. You have been negligent. You have ignored what I have told you to do. And for that, it's going to cost you your life, Uzzah. Letter A, David's failure. Letter B, God's fury. Letter C, we see his fear, David's fear. Look at verse 8, 2 Samuel 6. And David was displeased before the Lord, or rather because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How... Shall the ark of the Lord come to me? David doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't understand why Uzzah has died. He just sees that he's died. We're going to read verse 10 in just a moment, but I want you to imagine David's dismay. He's got his flute and his psaltery and the cornet and the whole orchestra out front of this cart. They're, they're having a celebration in David's mind. I'm honoring the Lord. I'm, I'm unifying the people. We're bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Man, this is awesome. And all of a sudden, uh, they hit a bump, a, a pothole in the road. Uzzah reaches up to study the ark and boom, Uzzah's dead. David is bewildered. W what happened? Why? What went wrong? God, I'm trying to do your work. I don't understand. I think of many husbands and wives who are frustrated in marriage. I am trying to be a godly husband or wife. Yeah, but you're doing it your way, and you're not doing it God's way, and you're frustrated with God, and you're frustrated at the situation. Parents who have children who aren't following uh, God's will and, and God's plan and are going their own way. Maybe even adult children that are uh, wayward and you think, what in the world happened? And God says, your motives were right. Just like David, your heart was pure. Uh, you're trying to do the right thing. Your motive is right on point. But boy, you didn't do it the right way. You did it your way. You didn't take put in the time to do it God's way. I'm, a, I'm very blessed in the responsibilities that I was given as a very young man in the pastorate. I remember I was 26 years old, 25, 26 years old. Matthew was three months old, just a little, little guy. And Pastor King, my pastor, came to me and said, I have an adult 
class with young, young married to middle-aged, middle, uh, middle-aged married couples that have children ranging from nursery up through about the ninth or 10th grade, and I want you to teach that class. You want me? And I want you to teach on marriage and parenting. You want me to teach on what? I have a three-month-old. I've been married for two years. What do I know? about? I have people in my class who are married 25 years. You want me to teach them? Pastor King said, because of the home you grew up in, you already know more about both of those topics than almost everyone else in the class. Just get in there and do it. And you know what? I got in there, and I had no idea what I was doing. I had, I had all this raw data in my head about how to do it, but I did not know how to articulate it. So, uh, praise the Lord, I jumped in and I read six, seven, eight, nine, ten books on how to be a godly Christian husband and a godly Christian father and, and what a godly Christian wife and a godly Christian mother looks like and what the structure of the home is. And you know what? Through the reading of those books, God began to shape me and mold me to understand Scripture Scripture so that I could do it his way. You know what I ended up happening is I was forced to put in the work to learn how to be a godly Christian model of a husband and a father. Now, I'm far from perfect. If you lived in my home and you saw me at my worst, you'd say, he's still got a long ways to go. And you would be right. You would be very right. Let me ask you a question tonight. Have you put in the work to know what God says about how to fulfill the roles that you've been given? Or are you just writing on past experiences? David said, oh, well, I don't know how to transfer the Ark of the Covenant. Let's just go get a cart. We'll stick it on a cart and off we'll go. Let's play our flutes and our cornets and our psalteries on to Jerusalem. Ha, here we come. A lot of people, that's their parenting model. I don't know how to parent. Let's have some kids. Oh, here we go. Off we go. Next thing you know, you might not have us a dying on you, but it feels like it. You may not have us a dying on you, but your marriage is falling apart. And boy, you were all excited about serving God. Your motives are pure. You're experiencing the wrath of God because you were too careless to study Scripture and do it God's way. Now, before we move on, I want to say two things. I hope everyone's listening tonight. If you've made a mess of things, I don't preach this sermon to make you feel guilty. That's not why I'm doing this. There is restoration. There is hope. There is a path forward. You still have children at home? Uh, There's a great chance for you to turn this thing around. But you better get serious about doing it God's way right now. For those of you who have small children at home, you better buckle down and you better get this thing figured out. It's not just good enough for you to be married. You need to do it God's way. It's not good enough for you to be a good parent. You need to do it God's way. It's not good enough for you to just show up at church and teach a class or be a deacon or, or, or help in a ministry or work in a nursery. You need to do these things exactly as they're laid out in Scripture. It's on you to study the methodology and follow God's plan. Letter B, we saw 
God's fury. Letter C, we see David's fear. David's fear. Look with me at verse number 8. The Bible says, And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perizuzzah uh, to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? Uh, so David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him uh, into uh, the city of David. But David uh, carried it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, Obed the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed and all his household. The work came to a halt. David had done the work of God the wrong way. Tragedy had struck. A good man had died. David realized his error and had the Ark of the Covenant carried to the home of Obed. David could have pointed at his motive and become bitter with God, but instead he looked at his failure and God's fury and chose instead to fear God. Instead of getting angry at God for punishing him for his bad choices, he owned it. He was responsible enough to own it. Oftentimes, when we make an effort at doing God's work and we land flat on our face, what do we do? We get bitter at God. Well, I, I tried to be a good wife. I tried to be a good husband. I did my best to raise good kids. They, everything turned out wrong. You know what? I'm done with you, God. And God says, well, wait a minute here. I gave you clear instructions on how to do those things and you, by and large, ignored those. And now you, don't, you want to be angry at me? Why don't you take a good, long, hard look in the mirror at yourself? Why don't you do like David and back up and say, This is woeful. I messed up. God is always right. And if there is a mistake that's been made, it is never God's fault. It is mine. It is mine. I must own it. Take your Bibles over to Proverbs chapter 1 with me. This is a verse all of us are probably familiar with, but maybe this will shed new light on an old truth. Look at verse 7. You were in my life group this morning. We looked at this verse a couple of times, I believe. The Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. It is a foolish attitude to say, I'll do it my way or the world's way instead of God's way. It is wise to back up and say, Lord, I fear you because I see what you're capable of. And I am now going to enter into doing it your way instead of my way. I'm going to be a Christian God's way. Not my way. I'm going to prioritize what God wants for my life and do it His way and follow His priorities, not follow my way and follow my priorities. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Only when we truly fear God, the way David did here, can we begin to get it right. Letter D, we see David's focus. Look back with me at 2 Samuel 6, and we're going to contrast 2 Samuel 6 uh, or rather compare Second Samuel 6 with First Chronicles 15. And so uh, get, be prepared. When we get done with Second Samuel 6, we're going to flip over to First Chronicles 15. Look at uh, verse 12 of Second Samuel 6. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him, because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the house of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bear... Look here. They bear 
the ark of the Lord. So now they're carrying it. They've gone from transporting it on a cart to bearing it on their shoulders. They bear the ark of, of the Lord, had gone six paces. He sacrificed oxen and fatlings. So I want you to picture this. Turn over to First Chronicles 15 for me. I want you to picture this. David goes back with the Israelites to get the ark. And this time he has the right people pick it up on their shoulders. They take one, two, three, four, five, six steps, and they stop. David says, okay, God hasn't struck anyone dead. I think we're doing it the right way. Now we're doing God's work God's way. Let's have a sacrifice here to say to the Lord, Lord, we revere You. Lord, we're focused on You. Lord, we've studied. Lord, we're doing Your work Your way. Look at 1 Chronicles 15. Now, in 1 Chronicles 13, we find the account of Uzzah dying for touching the ark. Chapter 15, we find David preparing to do God's work God's way. Look at verse 1. 1 Chronicles 15, And David made him houses in the city of David, and prepared a place for the ark of God, and pitched forward a tent. Then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God, but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God, uh, to, and to minister unto him forever. And David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the Lord into his place, which he had prepared for it. So now David is backed up, and he said, Okay, now, now not only are my motives right, now my method is right. I've gone and I've studied the Scripture and I've gotten the, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, Levites and we're going to go get it and we're going to do it God's way. Let me encourage you tonight. When a husband and wife commit to do the work of marriage God's way together, they will always find success. Always. You're having some marriage struggles tonight? And I don't always know. Some of you are very private about your marriage struggles. Very private. You ever marriage struggles tonight? I can promise you this. You're not doing it God's way. Some up, somewhere in that marriage, one of you, probably both of you, you're doing it your way. When you get rid of the struggles, then you've got to start doing it God's way. Well, if my husband would, hold on. If my wife would, whoa, hold on. Why don't we fix ourselves? And let God fix our spouse. How about when a mom and dad choose to rear their children God's way instead of following man's way? You know what they're going to find? They're going to find success. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a pretty strong statement from God's Word. You do it God's way, mom and dad, you work together. To rear children God's way, you're going to find success. How about when a church decides to teach the truth and build up believers and salvage sinners God's way instead of following the latest trend or fad? You know what happens? That church finds success. God wants us to do His work. Yes! Your motive matters. Oh, it matters tremendously. But God wants us to not only have the right motive, but to follow his methods. Number one, David's motive. Number two, David's methods. Number three, notice David's mirth. David's mirth. Here is a premier passage of Scripture that shows David's great heart for God. Here we see why David is called a man after God's own heart. Notice letter A, his celebration. For those of you in the room looking to figure out my alliteration ahead of time, I know there's a handy fool of you to do that. 
We're going to go with the letter S moving forward, not C. Okay. Let's throw that out there. Celebration. All right. I'm cheating a little bit. Look at verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with, an, uh, with a linen ephod. So David, with all the house of Israel, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. So yes, David danced. <laughs> there are a handful of verses in the Bible that people love to throw at us Baptist preachers. One of them is about wine. Jesus turned the water into wine. Why, aren't you, why are you against wine? Off they go, right? Another one is right here. See, David danced. You Baptist preachers are against dancing. Can't you see that David danced? Um, my father was a Christian school administrator for over three decades, and we, many of the schools we were at had uh, cheerleading teams. This is great. You're going to love this, okay? They had cheerleading teams, and uh, uh, we, would, we would see other schools' cheerleading teams. And my dad was always very careful to make sure that our, our girls who did the cheerleading were, were very modest. They, they would wear big, flowy, almost 1950s-style cheerleading skirts that came well below the knee, and, and they wore tights underneath, and, and they were dressed up to their neck, and, and they looked good. I mean, they looked sharp with the way they were uh, dressed, but he would always have the instructor to the cheerleaders tell the girls, when, you, when you're out there and you're celebrating and you're, if you will, dancing out there, we're going to dance north and south. We're not going to dance east and west. You understand the difference? All you Latin people, I know you know the difference, all right? Boy, Latin people can dance. I've yet to meet one that can't, all right? Well, I don't know about Brother Freddie. Brother Freddie, can you dance a little bit? The game, Brother Freddie can dance. They, they all can dance, okay? Uh, so... Uh, uh, but north and south, how was David dancing? Was he out in the street doing something that was sensual? And his wife seemed to think so. I, I don't think so. I think David was jumping up and down for joy. I think he was celebrating before the Lord. I think he was worshiping God with a heart full of praise that the ark of God, uh, the, the symbol for the name of God and the symbol of the presence of God was being brought in to the city where he was king. And David is out front and he's jumping up and down and he's rejoicing before God. David was celebrating the things of God. Boy, some Baptists sure could learn how to celebrate the name of God, just a little bit more. Um, uh, we, we seem to, here in the Northeast, we seem to be a little dry about our worship. It's a little dry. I'm thankful for all the culture that comes into our church. And uh, listen, don't let the uh, humdrum Anglo-Saxon European Italians hold you uh, 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 Latin folk and you island folk back for it. And, and, and if you're from another part of the world, hold you back in your worship. Uh, you praise the Lord. Don't be afraid to raise a hand if the Lord so moves while you're singing. And don't be afraid to say amen during some preaching. I'm being mean to white people here. We alright this evening? Uh, listen, uh, don't be afraid to celebrate before the King of Kings. And if God so stirs your heart, boy, praise the Lord in doing that. David celebrated. Now, for you Bible scholars, you Bible nerds, I'm just going to throw this out here for you to chew on later, okay? David wore, the Bible says, a linen ephod. That's a priestly garment. And in this one instance, David is acting as both a priest and a king. A priest and a king. And God let this slide. David was not punished for this. Now, when Saul tried to act as a priest, he was greatly punished. You remember that story? He, he had the, the sacrifice, and only Samuel was to do it, and, and, he, and he got out ahead of Samuel. But here, David is acting as a priest and a king, and there's no punishment. Why? 
Well, there's only two other times in Scripture where we find someone described as behaving as a priest and king. One is Melchizedek back in Genesis, right? He was a priest and a king. And then Jesus. Jesus is known as a priest and a king. And uh, David is a symbol here in this passage. David is a, a type of Christ. And so uh, you, can, uh, you, you can put that I'll put that out there and you can go dig a little bit deeper. By the way, the meal that David's about to serve to the people is the same meal that Abraham ate with Melchizedek. I also found that interesting. So we see letter A, his celebration. Letter B, notice Michal, that's his wife. Michal's spite, her spite. Look at verse 16. Of verse number, or Second Samuel chapter six, the Bible says, "And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing. That's that north and south, amen. Before the Lord, and she despised him in his heart. She, or in her heart, she despised him. So she sees him out there celebrating the ark of the covenant." Coming in, she looks out a window, and there's a despising of David, her husband, in her heart. Look down at verse 20. The Bible says, Then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious. Notice the third person sarcasm here. How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself uh, today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. And David said unto Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me before thy father, there's a dig at, at her dad, and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and I will yet be more vile than thus, and will be base in mine own sight. And of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore, the Bible says, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. Now, did she not have a baby because David neglected his duty toward his wife? Or did she not have a baby because God closed her womb? The Bible does not say. The Bible does not say. Uh, but, but her punishment was that she did not have a baby. Now, I think that uh, as far as the lineage, the bloodline goes, that's good. Because if you had had David's line mixing with Saul's line and a child being born from that, that would have created a problem here. Uh, and, and God in his sovereignty worked all that out. But here you have a jealous wife, and uh, Michal or Michael, she looks out at, at David and she's jealous at him because he's celebrating in the street about, about the Ark of the Covenant coming in. You say, well, pastor, was David immodest here? Well, David says he wasn't, and she says he was, and... I think Scripture probably lands on the side of David on this one. And so uh, here David is doing right, and he's being criticized for it. Here's uh, the little application I want to make, and I'll give you letter C, and we'll be done with the sermon. For those of you who are genuine in doing the work of God, you have the right motive, and you're, with all your heart, trying to do it through the right method. God's work, God's way. If you do God's work, God's way, I can promise you something. You will have people who do not like you. You will. It's a guarantee. Be prepared to be criticized. Be, be prepared to have your name drugged through the mud. Be prepared for someone to take a shot at you and, and, and accuse you of an ulterior motive. Oh, it's going to happen. I promise you it's going to happen. You can't let it discourage you. You know, um, anybody can be a critic. That's why there's so many of them. 
why there's so many of them. All of you in here, if given a chance, could come up with something negative to say about the church. All of you in here could. If you thought long and hard. It might be something really tiny. Everyone could find. But you know what? It doesn't help anybody for you to run around complaining about the problems in our church. You know what helps? It's if you become part of the solution. I love when people come to me and say, Pastor, our church would be so much better if we had... Well, when are you going to be starting that ministry for us? Are you volunteering to fix that problem? Because you come across as someone who wants to offer a solution and not just raise a gripe. David here is doing the right thing, and now he's doing it the right way, but his wife took a shot at him and criticized him. Boy, she was a wet blanket on a great day for David. Let her see, and lastly, we see David's service. David's service. Look at verse 17. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place, in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched forward. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, and he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as men, to every one a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, every one to his house. Look at verse 20. Then David returned to bless his own household, to bless his household. The Ark of the Covenant is set in its place. There's a, a, an air of festivity uh, uh, there. And David says, hey, let's have the first church potluck. And that's what it turned into. There was bread and meat and wine there for everyone. And boy, they had a feast and David was busy serving uh, the people. And when David got through serving the people, he went home to be a blessing to his own household. You know what David did in 2 Samuel 6, the latter half of the chapter? He fulfilled the two great commandments. He loved God, and then he loved his neighbor. He loved God, and he loved his neighbor. The presence of God, represented by the ark of God, had been placed in Jerusalem. Jehovah God was pleased. David was pleased. All of Israel was pleased. God is pleased when we worship Him both individually and corporately. Hey, let's be busy doing God's work. If you're a spouse, you have been called to do the work of God. If you're a parent, a church leader, a Christian, an employee, an employer, you have been called to a divine work. Let's not seek to please man. Let's not march to the beat of our own drum. Let's do God's work God's way. Have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this evening. Lord, would you work in our hearts this evening? And God, by way of invitation tonight, put your finger, Spirit of God, in areas where we have been frivolous and lazy and careless with doing the work that you've called us to. Lord, may we each dive into the Bible and understand what it says about all of the roles that we have. And Lord, may we be diligent in going forth and doing the work You've called the way you called us to do it. Lord, work in our hearts tonight as only You can. In Jesus' name.